Good evening and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, January 19th, 2023. It is a tremendous pleasure to welcome every single one of you and to be grateful to every one of you for joining that we can study together tonight. I've been looking forward to this all week. I'm ready and uh, I, I just, I'm so blessed to be able to spend this time studying Torah with you tonight. Before I do that, just one housekeeping note, and that is, um, with God's help, um, this week and next week um, will be normal schedule, and also the following week, which is uh, the beginning of February, also things should go well, will be normal schedule, but starting with the second week in February, there will be some dates that I'm away on two separate occasions, so all of the dates that I'm away are on our website, in our emails, uh, on Facebook page. I'll announce them as we get closer, uh, but there will be some dates starting February uh, starting February 8th, I think. I think that's the date. I'll, I'll check that, but somewhere around there. Um, so I'll give you those dates. You'll have them, and we'll be on and off a little bit, um, but, um, but uh, I will certainly appreciate and look forward to the times we could be together. But tonight we're together. Fantastic. And our Torah portion this week, the Parsha of the Era, begins with a very important message that God wants to convey to the Jewish people. And he tells Moshe to tell the Jewish people this message. And it's extremely important for God to tell Moshe to say to the Jewish people, I am going to take you to me as my people. And I will be your God. Vidatem, and you will know, ki ani Hashem elokechem, that I am the Lord your God, hamotzi eskam mitach asivlos mitzrayim. I am the one you will know for all time. I am the one who took you out of the suffering and persecution in Egypt. Ve'vesi eskam ala aretz asher nasasi es yadi laseiso sa laseiso sa, and and I will be the one who will bring you to the land that. I promised, and I made this promise, Avram, Liitzkak, to Yaakov, to our three patriarchs, Venasati Osalachem Marasha, and I will give it to you as an inheritance. Ani Hashem, I'm God. Wow, that's quite a message. Lofty, beautiful words. Redemption, establishment of the people, coming into the land of Israel. It's amazing. It's fantastic. What amazing, beautiful, inspiring words that God is sharing with the Jewish people. What's the reaction? But the people did not listen to Moshe. From their difficult spirit, their troubled spirits. And from the Backbreaking, difficult labor, the work that they had to do. How can it be that such an important message, such a meaningful message, such a historic, life altering message, they didn't hear it? So, Rav Yehuda Amital explains that. It's not meant to be understood literally. I mean, their ears were working. Moshe's talking, they're listening, their ears are working. 
but they were so overwhelmed with their physical persecution and their spiritual and emotional uh, difficulty, angst, they were unable to absorb it. They were unable to internalize the message. They heard it superficially, but it was like it was deaf ears. They just couldn't take it. They couldn't absorb it. They couldn't appreciate it. I've shared with some of you before the insight of the Kutzker Rebbe, the great Hasidic masker, Rebbe Menachem Mendel of Kutzk. He used to comment on the famous verse that we find in the second paragraph of the Shema. In the second paragraph of the Shema, we say, and God says, I will place my words, these words, the words of the Torah, al levavchem, on your heart. What does it mean to place the words on your heart? You could place words, I guess, in your heart. What does it mean to place them on your heart? Katsukurebi says, Sometimes there are situations when a person's heart is closed and when the words won't go in. A person is, for various reasons, physical, emotional, spiritual, their heart is not open to be able to hear and absorb the words that they are hearing with their ears. In that situation, the words that we speak are on the heart, not in it, so that when the heart does eventually open up, the words are there to be able to sink in. Ravamital explains that the process took time. It was gradual. But eventually, over the process of the narrative of this week's Torah portion and the beginning of next week's Torah portion, they were able to appreciate it. They were able to internalize that God is taking them out and taking them to Israel. It didn't happen right away. It took time. Gradually, they were able to hear the message that God had spoken to them through Moshe much, much earlier. And Rav Amital derives from this a very important practical lesson. And that is that even if sometimes in life there are great matters, we're hearing something extremely important, and for whatever reason we're not able to absorb it, it's not going in, or maybe words that we're saying to someone else and it's important, but they're just not, they're not able to focus on it. Don't despair, don't give up. You have to go over it over and over again. And then sometimes the, word, the words that you spoke, they will come a moment, sometime gradually, slowly in the future, and it will all sink in. It will all make sense. It'll be appreciated. And this is extremely important in the realm of raising children. You know, we say certain things to our children, and they don't seem to be listening to us, and we say it over and over again, over a period of years and years, and sometimes, not always, sometimes we merit that we see it finally sinks in. Often, we have to wait until our children have children of their own and they're saying the same thing to them that we were saying all those years to the, to the children and then finally, you know, they get it and they understand they have to pass it on and their children are not going to listen to them either and that's what they deserve. <laughs> it applies to shalom bias, to harmony within the home. Sometimes 
a person wants to say something, but it's just, it's not the right time. If the other person is upset, if the other person is hurt, they're not going to be able to hear what you say. They could become defensive, they could become angry, they could respond not the way you intended the words to be. Sometimes you have to wait. You have to wait for the right moment. You have to wait till the person's heart is open to accept your words. Don't just mouth off whatever you're feeling at that moment. Sometimes you have to wait. That message may be legitimate, may be important, but not now. Wait till it's the right time. And this is true in many, many areas of life, all areas of life. At the same time, while we need to understand if others don't absorb our words right away and why that may be and what we can do about it, that is definitely true, there is a second corresponding lesson that each of us needs to take for ourselves. Dr. Sanjay Gupta has become a very well-known physician. He's a neurosurgeon. He is a commentator on CNN. He has a very high-pressure job. He travels all over the world. He is married to a woman. Her name is Rebecca Gupta. She also has a very high-pressured, intense job. And the Guptas have just completed building a new home in Atlanta. It's been kind of stressful. If you've ever been involved in a, a renovation project, even there, and certainly when it's a complete building, it's, um, it's, it's stressful. But Dr. Gupta says, after they've now completed this home, we sometimes need periods of stress, but the key to managing stress is you've got to have the means in between to be able to decompress. And it depends on your environment. It depends where you are. The ability to be able to, to take a break to decompress. And he said in an article in the New York Times a couple of days ago that his home that he and his wife just finished, that's his place. That's the place where he is able, although it was stressful to build, when they started the project, his wife said to him, you know that 80% of couples who build a house together end up getting divorced. I can't substantiate those figures, but it certainly doesn't help marriages. I'll say that. It was really a situation, Dr. Gupta said, where Rebecca did what she thought was best because he was often traveling. So Rebecca made most of the decisions. <laughs> and he said, the few times I was asked for my opinion... Basically, the opposite thing was done. <laughs> okay, so it was stressful. But never mind, because they're happy with the results. They're able to derive pleasure from this home. This is a respite from their hectic lives. 
They come home and it's beautiful and they enjoy it and they can relax and they can manage the stress of their, of their work lives by being able to have this refuge. That's one approach. Works for some people. We have our own approach. Let me begin with an insight from Sivan Rahab Meir. And she asks this question in a very practical manner because, of course, we are studying in the Torah portion about what happened in ancient times, the Jewish people, when they were formed. But what about us? Why is it that our redemption is delayed? Why is it that we are prevented from leaving our Egypt, from being able to get out of the bondage in which we find ourselves, social, financial, spiritual, emotional, physical, whatever it is, and she explains that in our Torah portion, there are two enemies that make it difficult for the Jewish people to achieve their freedom. The hard physical labor and the lack of spirit. They had neither the time nor the space to dream. The urgent takes the place of the important. And listen to this additional piece. Chaya Batya Negroshel is the head of school at Yeshiva University High School for Girls, and she adds the following. The ability to hear, imagine, and believe in a future that is so radically different from and beyond the experiences of the present requires us to pause, to reflect, to listen. It is crucial to cultivate our inner lives, our ability, our life that is not driven by the demands of daily productivity, especially today. This is for every single one of us. We must make use of the luxury of having time to pray, to study, to laugh, to rest, especially on Shabbos. Not because it's fun or frivolous or indulgent, but rather because these experiences enlarge our spirits and open up our ability to grow both in the service of God and to each other. But I have an even simpler suggestion for you. And this is a suggestion that is cheap, it's accessible, and it is definitely worthwhile. Dr. Miri Avneri is a psychologist in Israel. And she asked the following question about this week's Torah portion. The verses we quoted at the very beginning. God tells Moshe, tell the Jewish people, okay, we're ready to go. I'm now going to fulfill the promises that I made to Abram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Let's go. V'lo shamu el Moshe, but they did not listen. How is it possible that they did not have enthusiasm for wanting to go free? What slave doesn't want to go free? You say to a slave, you're going free. Ah, how could you not listen to that? How could you not pay attention to that? Listen to this answer. This answer is remarkable. This answer is stated openly in Rashi, the most classic commentator there is. And I want to confess to you, I have learned the passage of Rashi that I'm going to quote to you in a moment. I have learned this passage many times over the course of my life. And I'll confess, not once did I focus on how simple and clear 
and meaningful this suggestion is. Listen to Rashi, writing almost a thousand years ago. Rashi says, the, the Pasuk says, the verse says, they did not hear Moshe, mikotzer ruach. What does kotzer ruach mean? Literally? Literally. Kotzer ruach means difficulty breathing. That's it. Difficulty breathing. Dr. Avneri says, from my years of counseling experience, I have found a lot of people think that to solve their problems, they need to address the mind, their thoughts, their emotions. But she says, from my years of professional experience, I have found that breathing properly is the foundation for all growth and development. Everything starts with breathing. Rashi explains they did not listen to Moshe, they could not hear Moshe because they were not breathing properly. Kotzer Ruach. Says Rashi, listen to these words. Kol mishu ruha. What does it mean? Mikotzer Ruach. Difficulty breathing. What does that mean? Unashimaso kutsara. A person whose breaths are shallow. And a person is not able to take deep, elongated breaths. We need to learn how to breathe. It's that simple. And to breathe means to breathe deeply and slowly. You take a breath in. And then you let it out very slowly. And remember, Dr. Avneri says, the best time to breathe deeply and slowly is precisely when we feel we have no time for it. Wow. And that's from Rashi. Literally, directly, word for word from Rashi. And... We will have a practice session in this tomorrow morning. If you join us at our 10, for, 10 at 9, tomorrow morning at 9 a.m., we will have a practice session in this topic. You're invited to join us on Zoom. But that's it. you got to breathe. You have to force yourself to relax in order to be able to hear the important messages that are going on all around you. Let's look at another area. So we discussed this last week clearly from last week's Torah portion. The arrangement that Moshe had made with God is that Aharon, Moshe's brother, would work together with Moshe. Of course, they did work together for the rest of their lives in leading the Jewish people towards Israel. But specifically, because of Moshe's reluctance, what God had said to him is that Aharon, your brother, will be with you and he will assist in those things that you don't feel you're capable to do. You said, Moshe, that you're not so good with the speaking parts. So here's what we'll do. Aharon will be there. 
Aharon will do the speaking parts. Whenever there's speaking to be done, Aharon will do it. The other stuff you'll do. Fine. Very nice arrangement. But the way it actually worked out in our Torah portion is different than that arrangement. And it is somewhat surprising. We learn in our Torah portion as follows. Vayomer Hashem al-Moshe God spoke to Moshe, Emar el Aharon, speak to your brother Aharon and tell him, Kach matcha, take your staff, your stick, Moshe's staff, Aharon's going to take Moshe's staff, and v'natayadcha al meime mitzrayim, you're going to strike your hand over the water of Egypt, v'yuladam, and the water will turn to blood. That's the first of the ten plagues. Hold on a minute. Taking the staff and hitting the water, that's not a speaking part. What is Aaron doing here? Why, why is it Aaron? God said that Aaron would do the parts that Moshe was not able to do because he couldn't speak. This is not speaking. Why did Moshe need help with this? Why did Aaron do this? So Rashi quotes the famous Medrash. Many of us are familiar with this. Moshe did not want to be the one to cause a plague that affected the water because water had saved his life when he was a baby, when he was floating in a basket down the Nile River. And he did not want to be the one to cause this plague through the water, so that's why Aharon did it, not Moshe. Hold on a minute. The question is obvious. Does it make a difference to the water of the Nile? Who is striking it with a, with a, with a stick, with a staff? Does the water care whether it's Aharon? The, uh, the water is an inanimate. <laughs> it doesn't have feelings. The water is going to feel bad if I did this great favor for you, Moshe, and now you're hitting me with a stick. I mean, that's, it sounds nonsensical. What kind of an idea is this? Rabbi Yisachar Fran gives the following explanation, and it's brilliant, and it's deep, and it's something we really need to internalize in our own lives. Rabbi Fran says what we learn from this is that the exercise of expressing gratitude is not only for the benefit of the person that did the favor. It is. I say thank you to the person to show my appreciation to the person who did this favor for me, this kindness for me. Yes, that's true. In this case, it was the water that did a kindness for Moshe. But that's not the only reason I express gratitude. I also express gratitude the benefit is for the person that is expressing the gratitude who received the favor. Because when a person is a recipient of any kind of gift or kindness or favor or help, they have an obligation to express their appreciation. Whether the, the entity that did the favor can appreciate the thanks, can hear it, is an animate and can appreciate being told thank you, that doesn't matter. The person has to go through life, every single one of us has to go through life realizing that people and things provide favors for me, provide kindnesses for me, provide help for me. And I am obligated to express my hakara satov, my gratitude, even if the doer of the favor cannot even be aware of the gratitude that I'm expressing because it makes me into a more 
decent human being. I've shared with this I've shared this with you before a number of times. The way in which Jewish practice has us wake up in the morning and the first thing we do is we say this line Modani Hashem Modani I'm thankful to you God the first words that come out of my mouth in the morning thank you. It is an approach to life to look for reasons not so that you don't miss what people are doing for you. That's one reason but it's also so you benefit from this outlook on life. I want to share with you a remarkable story. And it concerns Rabbi Yisrael Zev Gustman. I have shared with some of you a couple of stories about this great scholar and teacher. Near the end of his life, he was opened the yeshiva. He was the head of a yeshiva in Yerushalayim in Jerusalem in the Rochavia neighborhood of Yerushalayim. He was an outstanding Torah scholar. Before World War II, when he was in his 20s, Rav Gusman was appointed to the Betin of Rabbi Chaim Ozer Grzynski. Now, that is, that is an absolutely stunning and remarkable thing because that was in Vilna, in Lithuania. Vilna had not only the largest Jewish community, but the largest scholarly Jewish community, the largest community of rabbis of great renown. Vilna was the center. Rav Chaim Ozer was the greatest, most respected authority in Jewish law in the world at that time. Rav Chaim Ozer, the great respected Ruchayim Moser chose this 20-year-old, 20-something-year-old, maybe he was 25, let's say he was 25, 25-year-old to be a member of his court, deciding questions of Jewish law? To use a secular example, if a 25-year-old graduate of McGill University Faculty of Law were to be appointed to the Supreme Court of Canada, it's the same, it's, it's, it, it illustrates the same concept. Amazing. So this elderly, respected, world-renowned figure, Rav Chaim Moser, used to take walks with Rav Gusman, this young 25-year-old. They would take walks in the woods. And from time to time, Rav Chaim Moser would say to Rav Gusman, um, pick up that plant on the ground. If you eat this plant, you'll feel full for a few days. <laughs> and then they'd walk a little further and he'd say, uh, you see that leaf? Pick up that leaf that you see, that one right there. If you put that leaf in your mouth, you won't feel thirsty, even if you haven't had water to drink. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, they're walking through the forest. It's not exactly the kind of conversation you would expect two Torah scholars to have when they're taking a walk. And it's certainly not the conversation you would expect from the greatest authority in Jewish law in the world to be expounding on as they're taking a walk together. And he had no idea, Rav Guzman had no idea why, why is this respected elder statesman scholar taking a walk with me, a 25-year-old, and spending his time giving me lessons in botany. It just didn't make any sense. 
it turns out that the knowledge Rav Gusman acquired during those walks, the plant, the leaf, it saved his life. When World War II began, Rav Gusman fled into the forest and he fought alongside the partisans. And he had to subsist for long periods of time without food and without water. But he remembered what Rav Chaim Ozer had taught him, and he knew which plants to look for that could nourish him and sustain him through very, very difficult conditions that likely would have taken his life without those lessons. Now, just a little parenthesis for a moment. This certainly tells us something about Rav Chaim Ozer. This is what we refer to as Ruach HaKodesh, a person who is moved by the Spirit of God. That means that a person might be able to say something. They themselves might not even recognize the significance of why they are saying these words at this moment, but they are saying these words because God wants that message to get across, that that's a piece of information that somebody is going to need in a very serious way at some point in the future. Okay, that's what Chaim Ozer. It's just remarkable. I mean, they're taking a walk, the greatest scholars, the oldest, the youngest, and they're talking about leaves and plants. But it saved his life. Eventually, later in life, Rav Gusman moved to Israel, and he settled in Jerusalem, in the Rochavia neighborhood. And he opened his yeshiva. And he had a neighbor. And Rav Gusman's neighbor had a beautiful garden. And very often, Rav Gusman would go next door to water the plants in his neighbor's garden. One time, one of his students saw him doing this, and they thought it was just a little unusual for this great teacher, this renowned scholar, this elder statesman at this point, this elder statesman of the Torah world, who's watering flowers in somebody's garden. And they asked him, Rebbe, please explain why why are you doing this? Why are you spending time watering flowers in a garden? And Rav Gusman, Rav Gusman said, it was these kind of plants that kept me alive during the Holocaust. And out of gratitude, out of Hakara Satov, I feel an obligation to water these plants. Now, it didn't make any difference to the plants who was watering them. And even if it did, it's not the same plants. The, the, the plants that saved his life were, were uh, 50 years ago, 30 years ago. And it's not the same plants anyway. The, those were plants from Lithuania. These are plants in Israel. It's completely different. But the obligation to express gratitude is not only for the benefit of the one who gives the favor. That's the point. It's for the benefit of the person who received the kindness, the compassion, the help, the favor. It's to make a person aware of all the things that, it that we've been provided with in life, all the things that people do for us, and all the things that God does for us. The more a person becomes hypersensitive to the concept of showing appreciation and paying back favors and recognizing past favors, the more the person will be able to appreciate present and future favors that are done for us by all kinds of people, by our parents, our friends, our neighbors, and certainly for all the favors that God does for us. Gratitude is not an action. 
but an attitude, an approach to life. So I want to share with you now two remarkable stories, very, very different from each other. A little later tonight, I want to speak with you about Rosh Chodesh. We follow, our Jewish calendar follows the lunar moon, the, lunar, the cycles of the moon. Rosh Chodesh is the beginning of the Jewish month. Sunday night and Monday is Rosh Chodesh Shvat, the first day of the month, Jewish month of Shvat. So we're going to talk a little bit later about Rosh Chodesh. But here's the story for now. A number of years ago in Jerusalem, there was a well-known rabbi. And on Rosh Chodesh, he would come to the Shari Tzedek Hospital, famous hospital in the midst of Jerusalem. And he would come into the lobby and he would stand in the lobby for three to four hours. Just stand. He wasn't visiting anyone. He didn't have an appointment. He didn't go anywhere in the hospital. He just stood in the lobby. Three to four hours. And this happened every Rosh Chodesh, once a month, every time, every month. Now, people would pass him, and they see a man standing there not moving, so they would ask him, do you need help? you need directions? Can I, can I do something? He would say, no, I'm fine. It's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I don't need any help. Finally, the staff, they're seeing this happen on a regular uh, schedule, and they're wondering, what in the world is he doing standing in the lobby three to four hours once a month? So finally, somebody goes over to him and says, please, just explain. We're just, we're just, we're, we're mystified. What are you doing here? What, what, what are you, what, what's going on? Listen to his answer. And by the way, I heard this story. I'm sorry, I didn't tell you at the beginning. I heard this story from Dr. David Pelkovitz. This rabbi said, you know, each of us needs to be the kind of person who is constantly looking for reasons to be grateful and expressing that gratitude. We need to be looking for the excuses to say thank you. And he said, once a month on Rosh Chodesh, I come here to the lobby of the hospital to reset my gratitude clock. And I stand here in the lobby, and I look at that sign that lists all of the departments of the hospital. And I look at the line that says cardiology. And I think to myself, wow, my heart is working okay. It's beating. There are no problems with my heart. What an amazing thing. And then I look at the sign that says ophthalmology. And I think to myself, oh my goodness, my eyes are working. I can see. I have no difficulty. It's amazing to be able to see. And then I look at the sign for gastroenterology. My system is working. I can take in nutrients. Everything is going where it's supposed to be going and not going where it's not supposed to be going. It's amazing. It's incredible. It's a mir it is a miracle. It is a miracle. Most of us are too busy to, to focus on it. But it is, in fact, a miracle. And then pulmonology, oh wow, pulmonology. I breathe in and it fills my lungs with oxygen and then I breathe out and everything circulates and that causes the blood to be oxygenated and it's just amazing, it's so complex and mine is working, Baruch Hashem, it's working. I'm breathing in, I'm breathing out. In orthopedics, my bones, 
They're there. They're doing the right thing. They're moving the right way. I can move them. I can stretch them. And he goes through every single department in the hospital. And he spends time just standing there to feel the gratitude for everything in his physical body that is working. Amazing. And he says, I focus on that gratification. I focus on feeling grateful for all the things that are going right. And I feel recharged for the next month. It doesn't matter if the water doesn't know of Moshe's gratitude. Moshe was a different person, a better person, because of that. So I want to share a second story from a secular source. There's a new, relatively new weekly show on TV. Maybe you've seen it. Who's talking to Chris Wallace? So this is an interview of different people. Chris Wallace does interviews. And I saw one of them, and it was very, very good. I hope to watch some more of them. Perhaps you've seen it. A few weeks ago, Chris Wallace interviewed Henry Winkler. Henry Winkler started his career playing the character of the Fonz on Happy Days. That was 50 years ago. The Fonz is now 72 years old. Okay, now, <laughs> I would be embarrassed to admit to you how much TV I watched as a child. I just, some things are better left unsaid. But let's just say, I watched The Fonz on Happy Days, and it was a great show. And he's now 72 years old. And it turns out Henry Winkler, I don't know what you know about him, and all I know about him is from this interview, he's an incredible person. Let me tell you a little bit about Henry Winkler. So, Chris Wallace asked the following question. Okay, so, Henry Winkler, here's the question. How, how is it that you, a Jewish, upper-middle-class kid from Manhattan, he, he was raised on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, by your own admission he says to Winkler, riddled with insecurity. How is it that you get the job, the role of the leather jacket-wearing, tough, street-smart, Italian, coolest guy in the world? How is it possible that a guy like you gets that kind of a role? And they show a clip from one of those scenes. And if you, if you wasted all your childhood watching... <laughs> watching the show, you know, I mean, he, the Fonz was just, you know, the epitome of cool. So how does it happen that Henry Winkler from Manhattan becomes Arthur Fonzarelli, the Fonz? So listen to his answer. Winkler says, because I trained for many, many years to be an actor, and I got to play someone I wasn't, somebody who I wanted to be. Okay, wow. So Wallace says, okay, I understand, but, but it's acting, okay. But it would strike me, Chris Wallace says, that an insecure kid from Manhattan to play the Fonz, and Winkler says, yeah, it was, it was shocking to me too because they wanted, they didn't want me. They wanted a taller Italian kid. And they got, you know, this now, you know, this short Jew from New York. But all I did, Chris, all I did was 
change my voice. And he goes into a little bit of imitation of the voice that he used as the fonts. I'm not going to try to do that. I introduced myself at the audition. I introduced myself as Henry, and then I just started to do it. Something overtook me like it was a dipic that was in my body, and I changed my voice, and it unleashed me. And I was very lucky. And now I'm here talking to you. So Wallace says, and you plan to do that? And Winkler says, no, I didn't plan to do it. I didn't know what was going to happen. I just went with it, and that's what I was able to do as an actor but not able to do as a human being. I just went with it in my profession, but in my life, I was a bowl of jello that had not congealed yet. So Wallace moves on to a bit more serious topic because for the first three decades of Winkler's life, he did not know that he had dyslexia. And Wallace asks him, says to him, you were undiagnosed until the age of 31. Yeah, it's true. So you got bad grades in school. Yeah, bottom of the class. You struggled in school and your father, this is, you know, I'm just, but I'm quoting from this. Your father, if I get this right, dismissed you as a dumb dog. And Winkler said, yes, that is true. Yes. And he said, I learned through my ears. My eye and my brain were not friends. My eye and my brain, they didn't communicate with each other. I don't have great eye-hand coordination. I did not play sports. And Wallace says to him, so finally, you're in your 30s, and you realize that this is a physical condition How did you feel? And Winkler said, I was angry. All the times that my parents grounded me, all the times they yelled at me, all the times they made me feel bad for no reason. Listen carefully. And then I started to understand, I'm quoting directly, then I started to understand that maybe if I was not dyslexic, if I didn't fight through my challenge, if I wasn't tenacious about it, maybe I wouldn't be sitting here right now, talking to you. All of my success comes from overcoming the dyslexia. Okay, now, all of that is just a bit of context and background for what I want to share with you. This is what I want to share. So Wallace says, you don't have to do much research. You don't have to do much research about Henry Winkler to come across the phrase, I'm serious, the nicest man in Hollywood. Listen carefully. Winkler says, I don't believe I am the nicest man anywhere. I believe I'm grateful. I am grateful to be on the earth. I'm grateful to be living the dream I had in Manhattan working as an actor. I'm grateful for my family. And out of that gratitude comes, I'm just happy to be here. It's important to say thank you. When someone helps you, when someone is kind to you, you will make that person feel so good. 
so recognized, so appreciated, we usually underestimate the positive consequences of just those two words when they're said with genuine feeling, thank you, I really appreciate it. But here's the thing. This is the lesson from our parsha. Even if the person doesn't acknowledge it, even if the person is not able to recognize your gratitude, it changes you. It can help make you the nicest person wherever you are. So here's a comment on the Jewish world today. <clears throat> this week, on social media, there are advertisements for Gelbstein's Bakery in Lakewood, New Jersey. They are selling frog cupcakes this week. Savardea, the frogs, the second of the ten plagues in our Torah portion. And the slogan of this bakery is, bring the Parsha alive and have fun with it. So the ad from this bakery reads, the frogs are coming. Bring the Parsha alive, this coming Shabbos, the Parsha Va'era, where we learn about the Tzfardea, with our famous yummy pastry frogs. Okay, it's cute. But there's a lot more there. I have shared this with some of you before. It needs to be repeated. I need to hear it on a regular basis. The ten plagues that we begin this week, the first seven of the ten are in this week's Torah portion, the last three in next week's Torah portion. Th those plagues, each of them hold multiple lessons on many levels they have meaning in terms of what they teach us about God's control of the world, different realms of the earth, the sky, the ground. And each one of the plagues also teaches us moral lessons. What I'm going to share with you is written in a sefer, a book written by Rav Yaakov Kanievsky, who is known as the Stipler Rav, passed away a number of years ago. Great scholar. He lived in B'nai Brak. The verse says in our Torah portion, Vayet Aharon es yado al meimei Mitzrayim. So Aharon, remember, God told Moshe to tell Aharon to take the staff and to hit the waters of Egypt, and the waters of Egypt would turn to blood. And now the second plague, God has Aharon hit the waters again. Here, Another, the second uh, uh, plague, Aaron is also doing it, not Moshe. Vata'al ha'tzvardea, and the tzvardea, we translate this with the word frog. I mean, we don't actually, it's not an accurate, we don't know that it was accurate. It was some kind of a creature. Let's just call it tzvardea. Let's just say tzvardea. Some kind of a slimy, uh, unpleasant-looking thing that, um, that, I don't mean to make fun of frogs, I don't want to upset frogs, but... Um, but it's Fardea. Let's just call it Fardea. Fine. And the Tzfardea rose up, and it covered all of Egypt. There's a grammatical problem in the verse. And Rashi points this out. Tzfardea is singular. One creature. 
How is it possible for one creature, they're little things. How is it possible for one creature to cover all of Egypt? Listen to the words of Rashi. Tzvardeya achaz hayu. There was one, one little tzvardeya. Vahamitrim makin oso. And the Egyptians started to hit it, to get rid of it, to, to kill it, to, to get it away from them, because it was disgusting, it was gross. And every time they hit this creature, it divided in half. And each one that they hit, it divided in half. So within just a few minutes, from one, they now had thousands and thousands, and within a few minutes, it covered all of Egypt. Listen, please, to the commentary of Rav Yaakov Kanievsky, the stipler of. When the Egyptians saw that hitting the Tzvardea caused it to multiply, the logical thing would be to stop hitting it in order not to be overrun by these creatures. But the characteristic of anger persuaded them just the opposite. That the more Tzvardeim there were, the more they had to hit. And the more the frogs multiplied, the more the Egyptians were consumed with anger. And the more they lashed out and retaliated until the entire land of Egypt was covered with these creatures. Which, without their angry hitting, there would have only been one. And the stipler explains this is the way it always is with anger when we lose our temper. If we would listen and be quiet and not respond when we are provoked often, the situation would calm down. But the problem is we respond in kind. And the way we respond usually causes an escalation of animosity and harm. Therefore, logically, here's what ought to happen when we are provoked. We should wait before responding and respond calmly. But our characteristic of anger tells us, you're just going to take it like that in silence? Fight back! And the other person's characteristic of anger tells them the same thing. And each of you respond even more forcefully, back and forth. And the cycle of destruction continues until the whole land is covered with frogs. It takes great strength of character not to give in to our own anger, not to escalate the fight, but to pause, to breathe deeply, to take a time out, to let things calm before responding. It takes a lot of self-control. It takes a lot of character. But I have a very simple suggestion, and I'm speaking to myself as I'm speaking to you because I grapple with this issue and often fail at it. But here's a very simple suggestion. The next time you are provoked and you start to respond, ask yourself, what I am about to do or say, will it multiply the frogs? My friends, I want to wish you a beautiful evening and a harmonious, restful, spiritual Shabbos. And I look forward to seeing you soon in person.